All right, today I'm going to put your idiom knowledge to the test by seeing if you can complete these common phrases when you just have an answer shouted out. Blank in your pants. Ants, yeah, that's right. Ants in your pants. Okay, here we go. Barking up the wrong tree. Yeah, that's right. You guys are good. Something beaver? Beaver. Yeah. Yeah. Busy beaver? Oh, that's another good one. Yeah. Good. Yeah. That was a good alternative. Okay. Blank? Oh, yeah. Wow. That was, I couldn't even read it fast enough. Wow. Yeah, elephant in the room. Okay. Get your blank in a row. Yeah, you're right. Get your ducks in a row. Okay. Hold your... What'd you say? I can get behind that. Hold your slushy. Hold your slushy. Okay. Plenty of blank in the sea. Yeah, you're right. Plenty of fish in the sea. There are sharks. Sharks are fish, actually. Okay. Put lipstick on a... Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you haven't heard that one? We're all learning things here, okay? Okay. Straight from the horse's mouth. That's right. Straight from the horse's mouth. Someone has a blank thumb. That's right. <laughs> or a black thumb. You kill every plant you see. Okay. I'm all ears. I'm all ears. There's just one blank here. Yeah. But don't worry. That's no skin off my... I was getting off my nose. Yes! <laughs> okay. Here's, here's one I did not hear before, but apparently it's a thing. Wet behind the... Ears. Yeah, that's one I didn't know. It's all ears. Just guess ears. There is only two ear mentioned. No, there There's three. Th- one. Mm, I only see two. Huge no, that's that's the price of right now. Okay, so every culture throughout all of time has had their fun sayings and idioms. I don't know if you've ever looked into Victorian English idioms before, but they are by far some of the most fun I've ever heard. Some of my favorites are "got the morbs," which is like someone who's like kind of sad and melancholy. They got the morbs. Uh, suggestionize means to like prompt someone to pay attention or do something. Afternoonified. Is like someone who's like really smart, someone who's like studied. Afternoonified is fun. Bang up to the elephant means something that's like completely done or something that's like you know perfect or like complete. Umble come stumble. That's something that you can say when you completely understand something. Like yeah, I get it. Umble come stumble. Yeah, no problem. I'm good to go. <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's because. You would have to live a few hundred years ago if to, to make that common day. But don't worry about the Victorian ones. You got the other ones. So today, what we've demonstrated is that we have a common knowledge of some odd phrases in American culture. Many of them have their roots much earlier in history, but we still carry them through today. And we may not even know where they come from. But what's even more important than knowing what they are is that we have a common understanding of what they mean. Right? So language is only useful if me and Katie, when we say, 
I'm all ears understands that I'm not literally all ears, but that I'm actually listening. Okay, so we have to have a common understanding to go with. And that's been true through all cultures and and Jesus's day as well, which the passage we're going to be looking at today from the Sermon on the Mount has a lot of common laws from the Old Testament that were familiar to the people. But more importantly than just the quotations and ideas that Jesus is going to bring up is actually the common interpretations, the common understanding of what the Old Testament says. As it is often said, no one debates exactly what the, actually what the Bible says. We all agree what the Bible says. We just debate what it actually means. All right, And that's true today, and we're going to see that in full effect. And that's true in Jesus' time, and we're going to see that in full effect. So before I continue explaining some of the background that's going to help us understand this, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be finishing off chapter 5 here. So in an effort to apply God's laws to their lives, many Jewish people turn to rabbis, which are teachers, that's just the Hebrew word for rabbi, to help them understand what a particular verse meant. All right, And this is something that we do today. Right? We still do this today. We dive into verses. We seek to find meaning. We read commentaries. We listen to pastors. We do study because we know what the Bible says, but we're just trying to understand what it means. And there were entire books actually dedicated to these resources. Uh, some of the uh, Jewish books are called the Talmud and the Midrash. And they were just a compilation of different Jewish authors and ideas and rabbis to help people interpret scripture. Now, the Talmud and the Midrash weren't technically put together till much later than Jesus. But certainly during the time of Jesus, there were still schools of thought that you could subscribe to to help you interpret the Old Testament based on your preferred school of thought. So during Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought. One was called the House of Hillel, and the other is called the House of Shammai. Now, it's not super important you remember that, but you just need to understand that there are these kinds of two main schools of thought that are going to play a part in our passage today. They're named after the rabbis who started these understandings, championed their beliefs. So Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Shammai, they started their own followings, and so much later we get the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai, which kind of represent two main schools of thought. The house of Hillel was more lenient in their interpretations, and the house of Shammai was more restrictive. Now, we'll talk about those a little bit more as they're pertinent to our passage. But I want to prepare you guys right now for a longer-than-normal message this morning. You can go ahead and go, aw, and get your disappointment out of the way, okay? Katie is excited. The rest of you can go, uh, if you want. I don't normally like to go more than like 25 or 30 minutes, but there's sometimes just have to. And unless we want a 25-week series on the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to have to work a little harder and faster than that. So we're going to be taking quite a few verses, as you can see today. And I really wish I could parse them all out and go through every little detail with you, but I don't want to be preaching on the Sermon on the Mount next summer in this passage. So we're going to have to kind of take it a little bit faster than that. Six times today... You're going to hear Jesus say the words, you have heard it said, or the ancients were told. All right, and this is how Jesus introduces the ideas that he is going to then uh, destroy (laughs) and contradict. Uh, Well, not contradict. He's going to elevate them. 
Six times Jesus in this discussion is going to take commonly circulated ideas and then he is going to adjust them and elevate them past their common understanding beyond what the prominent teachers of the time were promoting to the heart of what God really meant and what he wants for us. So we're going to read them section by section. And as Jesus moves through different ideas, we're going to talk about them. But what is shocking to me is that, honestly, if Jesus was here in the 21st century and he was giving a modern Sermon on the Mount, he would hardly have to modify anything he says to talk directly to our culture. It hurts what Jesus says. It is very pointed and sharp, and it sounds like he's talking just to us, which is amazing how relevant the scripture is to our modern day, even though it was said 2,000 years ago. So our first section, verse 21 through 26. Let's go ahead and jump in. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be answerable to the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Come to good terms with your accusers quickly, while you are with him on the way to the court, so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last quadrants. Quadrants were just a really small division of money, some translations say penny. So he's saying... You're going to be there paying up every little bit last of it. Every little last bit of it, rather. So Jesus starts off strong here by directly offending our self, our self-justified anger. Like, our sense that we earned some kind of anger or hatred. And that we can use it or harbor it. We all agree that murder is a bad thing, right? Raise your hand if you think murder is a bad thing. That's really awkward. Let's try again. Raise your hand if you think murder is a bad thing. I really want to make sure we're all on the same page. Okay. Okay. So just as Jesus had quoted, this is something that God prohibited. It came out of the Old Testament. He gave the law to Moses, and he said, you shall not murder. However, this common law, and this is a theme that we're going to see throughout all of what Jesus says, these, these common ideas, people believe that the buck stopped with the actual action itself. Right, the actual action in question. So as long as you didn't actually kill someone, you're good. Right? And that's a legalistic reading of the passage, which I think, you know, if, if the legalistic interpretation, don't murder and you don't murder, you're good. Right? That's exactly what it says. But then Jesus takes this idea and he goes beyond the straightforward reading, the easy to manage stuff, And he hits the root of the problem. He says the problem isn't murder. The problem is anger. One of the symptoms of anger is murder. What we see is that Jesus is less concerned about the doing. He's more concerned about the source of the doing. All of what Jesus is going to say to us today is circumvents actions. And it goes back to the heart. 
Okay. So everybody point to their heart with me. It's on the left side of your chest in this area in case you don't know where it's at. Okay. Say, Jesus is concerned with my heart. Jesus is concerned with my heart. Okay, let's try it again. Jesus is concerned with my heart. He's not talking about your cholesterol levels. Okay. He's talking about your thoughts and intentions and attitudes. The core of who you are. Jesus is saying that hating your brother, being angry at him, is essentially the same as killing him. And that seems pretty serious, since after I urged you guys, we all agreed that murder is a bad thing, okay? There is something wrong with the feeling of anger, something that inherently leads to something else. And it's not wrong to feel anger. I I don't want to make sure we're all on that same page. Waves of emotions, they rush over us. Sometimes we just get feelings, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, how do you treat your anger? Do you let it live in your heart? How much of your heart is occupied by that hatred, that anger? Jesus implies that anger, if it rules over your hearts, inhibits your ability to properly worship and commune with God. So much so that Jesus says, there's no point in even making a sacrifice at the altar if you're angry with a brother. If your heart is filled with anger, then your sacrifice is ineffectual. If our hearts are filled with anger, then our worship is meaningless. Wow. That touches a little close to home. This morning, we've sang four worship songs. If you're angry at someone, that worship that you just gave to God, if you're harboring that anger, the worship you just gave to God, he doesn't want it. He doesn't want that. He wants you to go get right with people first and then come to him so that your heart can be free of that and really be given over completely to him. Think about that. Let that sink in. So what do we do to fix this problem then? We need to make peace with the people we're angry with. We need to seek resolution. And this is a value that Jesus pointed out at the beginning of this chapter in the Beatitudes. If we let anger live in our hearts, we aren't living as kingdom citizens. We aren't living out what Jesus wants to do. If we keep anger in our heart, we're living out the hatred of hell. And we're going to be liable to that. All the way to the last penny. So let's keep moving with this joyful critique of our lives. And to Matthew 27 through 30. Here's what Jesus goes on to say. You've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because... Categorically, we should all agree that's bad. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Again, Jesus is taking our outward actions that we can commit, and he moves them into the realm of our minds, into the realms of spirituality. So he's taking the physical world, and he's saying it's not about that. It's about in here. 
It's about what God is doing. It's about more than this. So committing adultery and looking at someone with lust and reality of sin and the reality of spirituality are the same thing. They are categorically the same thing in God's mind. We are being pushed here, especially in our culture where lust is used to sell everything from fast food to cars. Okay, It is plastered all over these electronic rectangles that we keep with us everywhere. So we need to be really aware of this. How serious is this issue to Jesus? So serious that he uses the hyperbole of self-mutilation to make his point. All right? It is better for you to tear out your eye. That's a disgusting idea. It is better for you to tear out your eye than it is for you to lose your salvation at the expense of lust. It is better for you to cut off your hand than to lose your salvation at the expense of lust. Now, obviously, this is not prescriptive, right? Jesus is using a metaphor, so don't go tearing out your eyes and cutting off your hands, please. He's using a metaphor here to make his point. Because obviously, if we tear out an eye or cut off our hand, we can still lust, right? Just having one less eye or one less hand is not going to cause that problem to go away. But what Jesus is saying here is that it is worth it to sacrifice anything in this life that may cause you to stumble and lose your salvation. It is worth getting rid of those things. So maybe that means a TV show that you shouldn't be watching. Maybe you can't handle that right now and you're watching something that you shouldn't be and it causes you to stumble. Maybe there is a friendship that keeps putting you in compromising situations, even if you're not physically doing anything up here. Maybe you have to get rid of that. Maybe there's a coworker that you need to be a little less friendly with because they cause your mind to drift to dangerous places. Maybe there's a website or a device that allows you to have access to where lust is uncontrolled. That needs to be torn out and thrown away from your life. It is better to lose a friend. It is better to lose a cell phone. It is better to lose your, lose your liberty to access the internet than it is to lose your salvation at the expense of lust. This is serious stuff. Really serious stuff. In a battle for holiness and living a kingdom life, stopping right before you actually commit an action isn't enough. The battleground you need to be the most concerned with is in here, not out here. So let's keep looking at what Jesus says. Look at verse 31 with me through 32. You have heard that it was said, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, before I go any further into this conversation, I believe a topic like divorce is something that is best handled in a small group or a personal conversation. But I'm not going to shy away from the truth either. There's a lot to unpack in these verses in this conversation. There are some really hard ideas that can't thoroughly be dealt with in a one-way conversation like at a sermon, all right? What this topic demands can't be done right here, right now. However, Jesus said it, 
So we need to think about it. So keeping that in mind as we go through this conversation, just give me some grace. And we can talk about it more if you want to. Maybe we can do a Sunday study on it sometime, marriage and divorce. But for now, let's just handle what Jesus has said. And this is where the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai that I mentioned earlier becomes more relevant. So there's this really interesting quote from the Midrash, which is one of those Jewish books that records what rabbis said. And they, writ, they wrote down three different opinions of different rabbis, one from the Shalel, uh, Hillel, one from Shammai, one from a guy named Akiva. This is what the Midrash says. Take a look at it with me. Okay, The house of Shammai says, A man should not divorce his wife unless he has found her guilty of some unseemly conduct, as it says, because he has found some unseemly thing in her. But Hillel says that he may divorce her even if she has merely burnt his dish because it says he has found some unseemly thing in her. Rabbi Akiva says he may divorce her even if he finds another woman more beautiful than she, she, than she is, as it says, it cometh to pass if she shall find no favor in his eyes. Okay, so here are three different opinions for you to consider from ancient Jewish rabbis. The house of Shammai and the house of Hillel were current in Jesus' time. Rabbi Akiva came about 20 years after, so Rabbi Akiva wasn't around when Jesus was talking. But the Hillel versus Shammai debate over marriage and divorce was really hot in Jesus' time. So the, the debate was over this word unseemly conduct in Deuteronomy 24.1 from God's law. So the house of Shammai took a more, like I said, a closed stance. And they said that pretty much anything other than adultery, right? That's the sexual immorality. That's the only reason that a divorce can be legal or be God-honoring or God-approved. And the house of Hillel took it to mean anything that upset you, essentially, even this really funny case of, like, burning your food, right? So it kind of seems like a funny example, but it's really what happened. Like, this is real life. People would abandon their wives because of, like, really trivial things, like burning a dish. Pretty much anything that they could find a cause for, that's what would happen. And then a woman, it was really hard for them to own property and live by themselves, so they'd be forced to get married. So what Jesus is saying here is if you leave your wife for a really bad reason and force her to remarry to survive, you made her commit adultery. Think about that. And... Akiva, I think, is just... <laughs> Don't listen to Rabbi Akiva on this issue, please. Okay, He, he actually has some other thoughts that are pretty uh, important and insightful, but uh, do not leave your current wife because or your husband because you found someone more attractive, please. Okay, But what Jesus is saying to all of these opinions is that marriage is way too important and permanent for any of the things like this. A bond put together by God should never be broken, right? And I think I can confidently say, in an ideal world, divorce will never happen. But we do not live in an ideal world. We live in a corrupted and sinful world. All right? Even Jesus gives an exception for divorce, which is adultery, sexual immorality. And Paul seems to give an exception that if we abandon, if a spouse abandons us because they're an unbeliever and they just decide they don't want to be part of our lives because we believe in Jesus, then that's okay. 
But like I said, this conversation is best had when you can look at more facts. You can really unpack the understanding and, and be thorough. But Jesus' main critique of everything that we've read so far holds its force here is that we cannot just stop at the actions. We have to go beyond that and look at the heart and underlying issues. And so certainly we should not use God's words to find loopholes and to get as close to the, the sinning line as we can to gratify our own desires. So that still holds true in this teaching on marriage and divorce. It's proper for us to take a step back and to look at more important things. What is God trying to convey and get across on a broader scale? So I've already been talking for a while. Are you guys still with me? Yes. Right? Okay. I'm going to give you a mental break for just a second, a little sermon intermission. Please check out these pictures of puppies and kittens <laughs> for your entertainment, okay? Aww. Just turn off your brain. Just let it, just let it disappear for a minute. Okay, let's refocus now. We just did a little brain dump. It's time to bring us back in, okay? Just hang with me. We're going to get through this, but it's so important. It's so, 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 so important that we try to understand what Jesus is communicating here, okay? It is really, really important. Let's look at verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, take no oath at all, neither by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black. But make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is of evil origin. All right, so there is this whole word game being played by the Jewish people in Jesus' day. A theologian named uh, D.A. Carson gives us a really interesting look into the types of vowels and word games that were being played in Jesus' day. Look at this. D.A. Carson says, One rabbi from the time of our Lord says that if you swear by, if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem... Then you are bound by your vow. So in this way, the swearing of oaths thus, thus degenerates into terrible rules, which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception, and when you can't. So people in Jesus' day were taking their statements and then adding God's credibility to their line of credit on their statement to make them seem more authoritative. All right? They're like, Here's my lease of authority. God's going to co-sign on it for me, right? And it was so nuanced that apparently there's a difference between swearing by Jerusalem and toward Jerusalem. But we're familiar with this stuff in our culture, right? It might seem a little different. We can say, oh, my mother's grave, or I swear to God, when we're trying to add credibility to something. And there's even some more recent terminology from Generation Alpha that plays right into what Jesus is saying. Now, 
I've heard that this language I'm about to use is already outdated, and the cool kids don't really use it anymore. At this point, I'm a cultural dinosaur. I will admit that, okay? So I apologize to all the kids out there for quoting these relevant terms and irrelevant time to your life. But here we go. So imagine you are a teenager or a child, and you're in a situation where one person says something that seems partly unbelievable, braggadocious, or outlandish, okay? One kid might say to that kid who they think is being outlandish, cap, okay, C-A-P, okay, not like a hat, like you wear a cap. It doesn't have anything to do with that, but it's spelled the same way, okay? Cap essentially means I think you're lying or you're exaggerating, okay? So cap. Then the kid in their defense who was saying the statement originally would say no cap, okay? That means, no, I'm really serious, okay? This is true, okay? Then if they wanted to make their statement even more emphatic, they'd say, no cap on God, okay? Essentially, they're saying, I'm telling you the truth, I swear to God, okay? So cap, no cap on God, okay? So that was a brief introduction into Generation Alpha's language, but I advise you, do not try to use it yourself, Because by the time you get a chance to say it, it will be even more outdated, and you're going to mess it up anyway. Okay, so just stick to your normal English, or righteous, or whatever old people say. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, just stick to what you can read in the dictionary and understand. Besides that, besides that you're not going to use it correctly, Jesus says not to do this specifically at all. Right? Jesus says, if you can't actually do something, you can't actually back it up, Or if it's not true, then just don't say it or do it. If you can back it up, and if it's something you can do, then just do it and say it and let it be. Yes and no are perfectly good words. Use them all by themselves. There is no need to take God's credibility and apply it to your limited knowledge, or even worse, apply it to your lies. Because what happens if we do that? We make God to be less trustworthy. And that is not something we want to play around with. Jesus essentially says, listen, you have no control here. No authority. And the things you're swearing by aren't in your control or under your authority. You did not create them. Heaven is the throne of God. The earth is his footstool. Jerusalem is his city. And in fact, you are his creation too. You can't even make a hair on your head change color. What power do you think you have to swear by something that God has created? You can dye your hair, but it doesn't actually change the color ontologically, like fundamentally. It just, it's a facade. They didn't really have hair dye in Jesus' day either. You get the point, okay? (laughs) What Jesus is saying is don't do it. Instead, stop making your promises and breaking them. Just be an honorable person who says yes or no. Anything beyond that doesn't come from a godly place. All right, so next Jesus talks about us, about revenge, which is fun. 38 through 42. 
You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not show opposition against an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other toward him also. And if anybody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Do we think that we have the right to carry out our own justice? Do we think that we know better than God the best way to carry out our judgment or his judgment? No, we do not have the kind of understanding and power that God has. So instead of taking revenge based on your own mortal and limited understanding and probably biased feelings, we should be resilient people who are patient towards God's judgment. So then, instead of seeking revenge and plotting how to get back at people who mistreat us, we should love them. Yes, Brittany, we should love the people who are mean to us. That's a good point. You're right. That's exactly, this is, thank you, Brittany, for being here. You're right. In the heart of our lives, what Jesus said, we do not like, and it doesn't make sense to us. But that is why the kingdom is so much different than this world. That is why living the way that Jesus wants us to live is extremely difficult. So if we have to love the people we hate, that are mean to us or our enemies, how much more then do we have to love the people who we call our brothers and sisters? We should be generous and loving, and the world will not know what to do with it. The world will not know how to respond. It's almost like what Jesus said earlier in this chapter, in verse 16. Your light must shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. By loving those who hate us, we are showing people to the Father by how we live. And Jesus keeps us on this theme of loving our enemies in the last section here. Look at verse 43 with me to the end of the chapter. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may prove yourselves to be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others, even the Gentiles? Do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect, complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect and complete. So do you want to be called children of God? Do you want to seek to live the best way possible? Do you want to live perfectly as your heavenly Father does? Then love everyone. As Bob Goff says, love everybody always, right? Remember how dangerous it is for us to hold on to hate and anger? 
Hating our enemies does not make us children of God. It makes us children of hell and sin. It makes us slaves to our corrupt human nature that we inherited because of sin. Kingdom citizens pray and love their enemies. They do not hate them. Kingdom citizens pray and love for the people that are bad to them. That is so hard. Maybe the hardest thing that Jesus has said to us so far. We are not like the rest of the people in this world. We can't be. We have to elevate past that. Jesus calls us to that. And if we fail, we are different than nobody else in this world. We have fallen victims to sin that so easily entangles us. So to finish us off this morning, I want to ask you a question. Will you elevate? Will you go beyond the hard-hearted interpretations of Scripture? Will you endeavor to not just modify your actions, but look into your heart and modify who you are? Will you allow the words of Jesus to shape how you live? You can't keep playing this game of how close can I get to the edge? Right? Think about spirituality and sinning like the Grand Canyon. How many of you guys have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. And if you've ever been next to a big cliff, you'll get this too. Okay. Or a tall building. It's amazing. Right? The Grand Canyon is amazing. And it's also really scary. It's kind of intimidating. The edge is daunting. I remember standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and like, I was like, wow, this is crazy. And I was like, I think I'm going to throw up because like, what happens if I fall, right? It would be a bad thing if I slipped over the edge. And if you ever go there, you're going to see signs like this, right? It says, do not enter dangerous overlook. Okay, don't go there. Jesus is telling us that we need to not walk along the edge of righteousness, right? Let's not skirt the edge of what is right. The thoughts that draw us to the edge are going to lead to us falling over. Reading scripture in a rigid and legalistic way leads us to this danger. There is a spirit of the law that goes beyond the actual words. And Jesus showed us that today. There's something deeper than just doing or not doing some things. So I'm asking you again, are you going to elevate? Are you going to go beyond that? We can do this, by the way. We can. With God's help and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become the children of God that he wants us to be. We can prove ourselves to be children of the Heavenly Father by living the way that Jesus said. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for giving us the energy and stamina to look at what Jesus says here this morning. And I just pray that you take all of these words and let them become a reality in our lives. Let them be strong and powerful in who we are. Please give us the courage to live it out so that we can become your children. In your son's name we pray. Amen.